everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rorkraut. And it is time to talk about Denis Villeneuve's Dune. I know you have been so excited for this, and it's been your most anticipated movie of the year. Did it live up to the hype for you? I think with that kind of built-up expectation, I was basically asking for myself to be let down. So I tried to go into the screening with a clear head. I'm very happy with how things turned out. And we had both read the book too. So we both had other expectations going into this movie, apart from reviews, apart from just the grand expectation of the names attached to the movie and previous works that had failed. There were so many things going on. And I'm so glad we can break down some of those things today. I'm so glad that you had a positive experience. I'm also, you know, I'm really happy for the people out there who think that this is like Lawrence of Arabia or 2001 A Space Odyssey. For me, it was not that, but I did enjoy my time. And I think of all of the experiences that I've had, like going back to the movies since theater shut down, this was the one that like blew me away the most as far as like technical components went like Mm -hmm. I felt like I was in some type of other world which was very very cool so overall like we can get into like a review and everything and how we think this will do but I really was pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed the experience and I think how well Denis Villeneuve is suited to tell a type of story like this well I'm glad you really liked it too I (laughs) Wasn't sure what you were going to say afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely had an out of this world experience seeing it, though. Like, we can get into New York Film Festival and being feet away from Denis and all of that. That definitely added to it. And who knows what I would have thought if that wasn't the case. But after I saw it, I was very happy because I was like, there was a world before the movie where I was like, oh, my God. If I really, really hate this, this is going to be so hard for me. Like, we have such a long Oscar season ahead. Mm -hmm. Like, we're going to be talking about this movie for so long. And I knew you were going to like it regardless. (laughs) So I was like, this will just be so much easier if I like it. So I was pleasantly surprised that I found enough things in it that are suited to my tastes. I'll say that. (laughs) There was, like, a half a thought in the back of my mind, like, what if I don't like this movie? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't love myself think that I left the theater like so high on spice that I (laughs) was jittery, like I was caffeinated from this experience. So the fact that you were with Dany and Hans, like I would have been shaking. It was really crazy. So just quickly for listeners, I worked New York Film Festival and one of my responsibilities was actually working the Dune screening, which was insane, obviously. But I ended up watching the end of this movie, like sitting six feet behind Denis as he was standing up in what they call the spotlight box. It was just like his figure and then Timothy's face like on the giant screen. And I got really emotional. I was like, this is like the coolest thing ever. I'm so Mm -hmm. happy to be here. It definitely added to it for sure. How were those crowds? Were there like tweens swarming the theater? Yeah, so for context, the screening was at 8.15. I got there at 3, and there was already a line around the block. Like, almost 
all the way from the front door of Alice Tully Hall, like almost curved around to like the stage door. And it was like mostly, I would say, young people, like early 20s, college students. People like brought camping chairs and were eating their Shake Shack and had Starbucks. It was, it reminded me of like going to those Harry Potter movies or Mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings, those like midnight screenings. It was just really cool to see a crowd like that so excited for something so weird and so nerdy. It was really cute. The crowd itself was really invested in the whole thing. I thought the script would be entirely humorless. You know, the book is very self-serious and some of Denise's films are more that way, but there were lines that the audience was laughing along with. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really cool experience. And I'm definitely going to go in IMAX because, you know, I've heard from all over the place that that is the preferred method. So I'll be doing that when Amazing. it comes out too. Yeah, I'll be there. I already have my ticket for next week. And I have other friends who aren't going on opening night. So I'm like, I will absolutely go a third, a fourth time. Just let me know when. (laughs) Well, you have to see it in IMAX multiple times. You have to leave your HBO Max running. (laughs) Because after all of this, like, we really need part two. I feel like part two is essential after this. And I'll get into, Mm -hmm. like, some of my issues, of course, with the script and it being a part one. But yeah, I'm like, we really need part two. This thing can't like happen in vain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What was your viewing experience like? I know you saw it at New York Film Festival too. We were just at different screenings. Mm -hmm. I was in a different, a smaller theater. And we had both been there before to see the tragedy of Macbeth. So Mm -hmm. I had my timing worked out. I was like, okay, I can run outside, get in the line, hoping there wouldn't be a million people already waiting to get in. And thankfully there weren't. So I got my perfect seat right in the middle, middle front. Like right where we were sitting for Macbeth, right? Like right Exactly where we were sitting. And I think just watching it, it's very epic. You know, it's everything you're hearing about it in vision, in score, in story. And I would say for the last at least an hour, my whole body was clenched. And that's Mm -hmm. partly because I expected it to end differently based on where I thought the book would be split in two me too and so when it kept continuing I was like oh my god please don't end please don't end and then I kept going and I was like oh let's keep going like how much are they gonna show Mm -hmm. they got to like the challenge scene and I was like oh my god this is in part one so I was feeling so many different things and I really like that comment you mentioned Denis had told the sound operator to like turn it up a decibel Mm -hmm. And that was part of what I love so much was like feeling the score and the sound rattle inside of me. Yeah. They're doing so many great things here and with mixing, with editing, with the score. And I think that's why I was so consumed was hearing these sounds, some new, some regularly used by Zimmer and by Danny in his movies. So I found a lot to enjoy And even with some of the things that they changed, I thought most of them worked well. And then even with that ending, when I finally knew it was going to be the ending, (laughs) I could feel like the anticipation just rising for what's to come in part two. If we get part two, fingers crossed, manifest it. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's like the hardest part of this whole thing was that Like the last hour, the pacing is really good. It's propelling you forward. 
but then when it ends, like, I did feel, like, kind of like when you're at a restaurant and you have, like, two bites of food left and the waiter, like, takes your plate before you can be like, wait, 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 I, I'm not done yet. That's kind of how this movie feels. And that's just of it being structured that way. Um, but we can definitely get into that. We're, like, getting way ahead of ourselves. We haven't even, like, gone over our usual, like, background info or any of that. Um, For any of our really highly anticipated movies that we think will be big Oscar contenders after we see them, we will kind of structure our episode in two parts. The first part will be a review of the movie. We'll go over production facts, box office, festivals, all that good stuff. Get into spoilers, so we'll warn you there. We'll be talking about differences from the book talking about the ending. So if you do want to skip ahead, you definitely can do that. And then the second part of the episode will be going all over Oscar predictions category by category. In this case, we have quite a few categories. So that'll be very fun. Will this be the most nominated film of all time at the Oscars? I don't think of all time, but I think this year, yes. The first thing I texted you pretty much after I saw it was like, we're looking at like 10 or 11 (laughs) nominations here. I guess that's fair. Yeah, we'll get there. Backing up here, we'll go over the description first. Paul Atreides, a brilliant and gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding, must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure the future of his family and his people. As malevolent forces explode into conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resource in existence, a commodity capable of unlocking humanity's greatest potential, only those who can conquer their fear will survive. It's directed by Denis Villeneuve and based on the book by Frank Herbert. It stars Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Jason Momoa, Zendaya, Josh Brolin, Oscar Isaac, and many more. And then it's released so far, it had its premiere at the Venice Film Festival and then is also screened at the Toronto Film Festival and at New York. It was made for $165 million. And then early box office numbers, I know we mentioned, I think two weeks ago, that it had like 75-ish million already. And it's up to 117.6 million in certain international markets. So it's already rising. I know they're really anticipating the U.S. market, which is Mm -hmm. where they're hoping the majority is going to come from. So the fact Mm -hmm. that they're already here, this is like a huge boost, I think. And honestly, I'm a little surprised by it just because we're still a week out from a wide release. Yeah, I think one thing that's been pretty cool to see, it's just like I've been checking some IMAX screenings just to see Mm -hmm. the IMAX screenings are packed already oh yeah it looks like a big premiere screening the like standard theaters are not which is really funny so the marketing to see this in IMAX is clearly working but yeah I think that 117 million is a great dent I think we need to exceed 250 million to make this go they haven't confirmed like whether that's the number or what the number mm-hmm. is, especially with the day and date HBO Max release. But I'm really curious if these are really positive signs or like what the North American market will do, because I know Denis Villeneuve has joked about like Blade Runner 2049 doing well in Europe, doing well overseas, but not doing well here. So hopefully this isn't the case, but they are advertising this like out the wazoo like the nfl and college Mm -hmm. football crowd i can tell you 
like from the games that I've watched. We get the trailer every few commercial breaks. So usually I'm worried by a really robust marketing campaign. Like a trailer you see every commercial break is not a good sign. They're usually not big movies either. It's usually for some like. Like Shutter Island when that came out. I remember that was a big one. Uh, yes. Um, that one with Rebecca Ferguson and Hugh Jackman that's, reminiscence. That's one of That them. was a big yeah. one. Yeah, I see what you mean. It can be maybe a warning sign, but I feel like like they just they have to do it for this one because they just they know how dire the circumstances are. <laughs> like, will this movie save cinema? It's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> not to me, but <laughs> yeah. And then getting into like our review and reactions, which we've already covered a little bit because we couldn't help ourselves. Was this your favorite movie that you saw at New York Film Festival? It was, yeah. I think Come On, Come On is in a close second. And then The Lost Daughter. Interesting. I think I saw eight overall. And I think for festival goers, that's fairly mild, which is still crazy to think about. How about you? Was this... Where was this placed in your rankings for the festival? Uh, It was not high on my list for what I saw at the festival. I am going to like sing praises for the power of the dog all year. Um, I loved the tragedy of Macbeth, the worst person in the world, the lost daughter. I really loved. Come on, come on. Like those are all above this, but I still liked this. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the power of the dog is just like a, that is a very me movie. Mm-hmm. This is not. So I'm just like more predisposed to like something like that, I think. Um, but this did exceed my personal expectations. I'll, I think it'll finish out in like my top 20 for the year. We have plenty coming. There's no way. But again, like, I think that's fine. We're going to be Siskel and Ebert on this. And that's kind of what we <laughs> expected. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm not upset by it. So I think my biggest concern coming out of this is just like we are so into movies and award season and we read the trades for fun. That is not your average moviegoer. I do not expect that behavior of most people. Like it's a little absurd. Do you think that the casual moviegoer knows that this is Dune part one? Because my biggest issue is that it's a part one and it feels very much like a part one. It doesn't feel like its own self-contained story. And I think, you know, if I went to a movie and thought it was going to be Dune and got just like a lot of exposition, some incredible technical elements and a lot of world building, but then it ends with this is only just the beginning and we don't even have a guarantee of the second one. I don't know how I would feel about that as just like your, your average moviegoer. If I didn't know that, because it's not being marketed as Dune Part 1. I mean, I get, I guess why, but it just feels odd to me. It's different than Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, which are very much like individual, self-contained stories. What do you think about that? I feel like in the same vein of that worry is that I feel like casual moviegoers don't know that a Part 2 isn't confirmed yet. Or do you feel like they're hearing that along with the crazy marketing campaign? I think you're right. Like, that could be a possibility. But I still think they deserve a movie that stands alone. And that ultimately is my biggest issue because this movie does not stand alone to me. It feels incredibly wobbly by the end 
because it ends with this like whimper, not with a bang. It's just like mm-hmm. you can feel the spice and the sand like escaping you. <laughs> like you're trying to grasp onto it and there's just nothing there. I think that the technical elements, that's what leaves a lasting impression on you. But when I see a movie, I want to feel more than just awe. I want to feel like it's a story with a purpose. And I think that this movie's purpose is to get viewers ready for a movie that is not even guaranteed, which is really hard. I don't know how to feel about that because Mm -hmm. I've never been in a situation like that watching something. I do agree that I wanted... Like, we had a literal crescendo, but I wanted more of an emotional one. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get there with the score. And part of me did knowing that they would end on this pretty dramatic line. Mm -hmm. But I did want more. Also to the whole thing of people not knowing that it's two parts. Yes, I didn't even know this. But looking back, I found some production development information. And originally, they made the deal to mirror the adaptation of it that had two parts (laughs) sorry (laughs) i'm just laughing because chapter two was so bad and this could never be that bad (laughs) he would have to be like sleepwalking (laughs) for that to happen through the desert the entire Mm -hmm. part two (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm not saying in any way that those movies were good because I didn't even see part two, but they made the deal with Warner Brothers as a two-part deal, even though when the second one came about, they would still need to make new production deals, which sounds like a whole lot of mess. It does. And part of it is like, yes, Dune technically is intellectual property, but the past versions have been like so cursed and panned it's obvious that like a studio can't expect this movie to do that well like i i fully get that and you know with the blade runner 2049 performance at the north american box office like it just feels like a combination of things but denis being his libra self is like i'm gonna do it which i kind of admire it's a big gamble i mean there are a lot of gambles that are taking place in this movie this is a notoriously tough book to adapt and it makes me wonder kind of like if it's just too much i think though that the parts of this that were the most successful were things that i was not anticipating which is that i do think he made it pretty easy to understand and i found the book to be very dense and i've heard from people who saw it that didn't read the book that while there was a lot of exposition it was fairly easy to keep track of and i think he kind of used a game of thrones type storytelling model and that Mm -hmm. worked for him i think reading the book does help only in animating a lot of the stories where they either summarize them or cut parts sadly just for the sake of cinema and like keeping this story going it's a really fast-paced two and a half hours and i was really surprised by that But I think Denis overall is trying to grasp the world that Frank Herbert created. And I don't know if his original intention was like, I really want to split this up or if he just signed on with this deal and was okay with it. But he's also directing Dune the Sisterhood, which is a series coming out next year. So I think I like that he's so involved 
and so committed to sharing different stories from this world. And it's funny you mentioned Game of Thrones because the language creator from the show, David Peterson, helped develop languages for this film. And he's been attached to Dune since April 2019. Oh, that's interesting. What a fascinating job to have. (laughs) (laughs) Helping us to be able to say Bene Gesserit and Gom Jabbar. (laughs) Like what? That is not how I saw it when I read the book. So I was very happy that I now know how to pronounce some of these terms. (laughs) So I had seen the first 10 minutes months ago at this point in IMAX. And I didn't like the beginning then, I have to say. The editing was very choppy to me. I found it pretty confusing and disorienting how it was laid out. But this time when I saw it, it did work for me because I like how it opens with Zendaya. And I wrote this down. She says, my planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see the spice in the air. I like that because it's her perspective as Chani. And I think when you hear people from... House Atreides describing Arrakis. It's this planet that is like completely desolate and like doesn't have anything to offer and is dangerous and is something that they have to fully adapt to and change to understand. But I like how it opens with her perspective as like how the Fremen see that planet. I thought that was a really cool twist and was like promising in a way because I was like, okay, he gets like the depth underneath this story of like the political themes and Mm -hmm. colonization obviously that's happening in that story that makes it different than a lot of the other sci-fi epics and fantasy stories that we know that was something that really blew my mind in this version because i love that they started with chani's voiceover and that we were talking about the spice and that it was from this totally different perspective of how i read the book basically from Paul's eyes, even though it may be third person, you're seeing it as a newcomer from him. But I love that we hear about, you know, these people are coming to my world as Chani. And in a later scene, we meet Stilgar, who's also a Fremen. And he comes into the Atreides house and like doesn't really give them much respect. But it's because these people came to their world. They don't know how to live on it. And they've been there for thousands of years. And recording this in the same week as Indigenous Peoples Day sounds uncomfortably familiar. And that is what makes Dune this really special book, is that its political themes are so mature. And it uses these different houses and planets and characters to show these problems that have persisted through centuries and across continents. And in a bleak way all the way into the future like what year do we start in and do like 10,000 10,191 there we go it's like oh great so while it was off to a really promising start there I was kind of disappointed though because it has so much to do Mm -hmm. with the world building that it, it doesn't do that again it doesn't dig in deep enough to those themes like I wanted it to be not just epic in a way that was technically epic I wanted it to be epic in its storytelling and instead I think we get much more of a story kind of like what you were describing a little bit of like it's totally through Paul's perspective 
And with him being this messiah-like character is kind of how the movie chooses to tell the story. And the reason that doesn't work for me all of the time is because so many science fiction movies and franchises have openly lifted from Dune. Star Wars being the biggest one. And they've specifically lifted from the Paul character. And when that work has already been done for you, you have pretty much like free reign to know that your audiences already get that about Paul. Like, it's really easy to know like, okay, when you see Timothy Chalamet in there, these people are whispering about him and he's having these dreams. Like, it's really easy to know, I think, based on other things you've watched and read that this is the type of character maybe that he's being set up to be. So why not use that existing knowledge and not dive into it further? Why not dive into those things that are more interesting and that make sci-fi tales like this one much more universal? So I think I just like wanted more in the script and in the storytelling. And we get a whole lot of more in other (laughs) places for sure. I think part two is going to have a lot more of Chani and maybe even transition into her leading perspective. So I'm hopeful Mm -hmm. a little bit about that. I do really like how big of a character Lady Jessica had and the fact that they changed Dr. Leah Kynes from a male to a female. It added so much depth to the Bene Gesserit, to understanding the female perspective in this movie and not just one dominated by men that we've seen over and over. You know, you mentioned Star Wars. So even where there might be shortcomings, it's still a net positive for me. I'll also say, like, thinking about the women, Lady Jessica was my favorite character. She was in the book, but also in the movie. I thought Rebecca Ferguson did a wonderful job just bringing a lot out of that character and in this version. All of the scenes I think that worked really well on my crowd were the scenes that she was the center of. Like you could feel the energy shift and she is like the character I cared about in the story. I think that might be a shortcoming again of like the script and just too much world building happening, but like she is the only character I like truly cared about by the end. Sorry. But the scene that everyone laughed at is when Charlotte Rampling says to Jessica, she's like, why didn't you have a girl? Like, you were supposed to have a girl. Mm -hmm. And it's just all these lines about, like, how you shouldn't have had a boy. Girls are the, like, (laughs) chosen people. (laughs) Yeah. For the Bene Gesserit. I think that Villeneuve showed that he actually does care about the women in this story a lot. And he said that in interviews, too. But a lot of times directors will say that in interviews and not actually mean it but I definitely saw more character development and like interest being taken in the women I agree to what you're saying about Lady Jessica and when I finished the book I was most excited to see Rebecca play her like Mm -hmm. she's my favorite character as well there's so much depth and I think again that's because of the book but I'm also hopeful in what Danny can do and he's shown a little bit of that already One part that I really liked was how when they're doing the hand in the box scene, they cut to Lady Jessica standing outside the door and she is Mm -hmm. like in tears, fearful for her son's life. And it shifts the perspective and it's like, oh, we need to be watching everybody, not just Mm -hmm. Paul. And she, as an actress, 
And I think the way that her character is written, she can make you feel those things in a way, for me at least, that the other actors couldn't really. But, like, she was so capable of that that every time she was on, I was so, so engaged and, like, just wanted this whole movie to be about her. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this is because Daini and the writers realize that her character is way bigger than maybe it's portrayed in the book. So I'm glad she's getting more of a spotlight. Things that fall short to me with the adaptation from book to screen is that we don't fully understand who she is. Mm -hmm. And this goes for multiple characters like Dr. Leah Kynes. We don't have a lot of the backstory. We don't go into the horticulture and the secret garden that they find in their new house. A lot of the relationships that we see on screen, like between Paul and Duncan Idaho, I think we might see them for the first time hugging. So we assume that they're really close, but a lot Mm -hmm. of that backstory isn't told. But Mm -hmm. back to Jessica, we really only get one line about who she is. And it's when the Duke Leto says to her, I should have married you. Yes. Yes. And I feel like a lot of this would be so good. And I would totally sit through a four hour movie. <laughs> yeah. No, getting I was just every like, I want scene. this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, reading the book beforehand is a double edged sword. Like, you go in way more prepared because mm-hmm. you've spent so much time in this <laughs> so world because it's so long. <laughs> but then you obviously, I mean, this happens every time I see a movie after the book. I'm like, well, they left this out and they left mm-hmm. this out. And this would have yeah. been like so fascinating to dive into. What's interesting to me about this world and about these characters are these stories and these decisions that they make and why they make them and where they come from. I feel like we just don't get them. That's in service of the world building to Mm -hmm. me. It's like there's just too much to do. And I think his preference as a director is for that, which in a lot of ways makes him the perfect director to tackle this material because the world building was excellent. But like the lack of depth in the characters, it left me kind of cold. And I... I knew there was more that could be, I think, which is why I was disappointed with that aspect. Yeah. Another big one here is that we don't see a lot of the trickery that Dr. Yue is doing behind people's backs. I think we get like two scenes before they tell us that he's the mole. And it's just too quick. Like there's just not enough anticipation built up or not enough dramatic irony like say Hitchcock does in his movies. It could have been so much more thrilling and such a greater payoff if they had drawn that out longer. Yeah, I agree. And again, it's like my complaint about a two and a half hour movie is that it should be longer. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so overall, I would recommend this movie. I do not think it's the greatest sci-fi epic ever created. I think people maybe have like too high of expectations there. So I'm going to temper them mm-hmm. a little bit. And just say, like, it's solid. It is a beautiful movie to look at. The story is pretty easy to understand considering the names and the languages and the planets. I think he does a really good job of making that accessible to the average moviegoer or to someone who is really interested in science fiction but hasn't read Dune. Maybe they've dabbled in other things. What's missing for me, it's everything that makes the characters complex and 
what makes the story different thematically. And I think a lot of that is because it's a part one and its goal is to set you up for what's to come in a movie that might never happen, (laughs) which is just scary to me. That's really hard. I hope that it does well so we can get part two. But the ending here was a little troubling for me. But I would recommend this. I think see it on the biggest screen possible. Everyone is saying that, but it's true. Like, Mm -hmm. go to IMAX if you can. Like, go to a movie theater. I know it's on HBO Max, so if that's the only option for you, do that. Do whatever makes you feel safe. But if you can go to a theater, go to a theater. And overall for me... I try to put everything in perspective. Like this was a novel written in the 60s that to be made like this, I feel like is a great representation of what I was visualizing when I read the book. And I don't know how Frank Herbert's family like reacted to this movie in particular of all of the adaptations. But I think if you want to be wowed and just enjoy the imagery of being transported to a different universe... That's one thing I loved here versus the power of the dog. Which okay, you don't trash my movie. About. I've been so nice about this when I did not have to be. Do not do that to me because I can I can be mean. I can. And it could come back. You could say what you think. I think that's fair. And you should. It comes down to a tale old as time. You know, you have two great families fighting over a land and a battle ensues and even though all of the characters aren't fully fleshed out i think what denis and his team captures here they're telling you as much as you need to know to understand the story and to live in this world if you want to learn more read the book yes it can be dense at times but then you're going to feel like You're like, oh, now I understand why they did this or like what this meant. And while this isn't no time to die, like this isn't nonstop, nonstop action. I think it still is wildly entertaining. So now before we get to part two of our episode. (laughs) (laughs) Which we can confirm is happening just like the movie. We're going to be bringing back one of our mini games. This is going to be a lot of fun. This is Smash or Pass. <laughs> yeah, one of our most scandalous mini games. I will say that. Yes. We originally, and we've only done it once, and it was on our Valentine's Day episode. So I'm excited. I think this is a worthy occasion to bring this game back. Absolutely. So the way this works is we're going to list off a bunch of characters, and we're either going to say Smash, which. I think everyone knows what that means. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> or we're going to say pass, which means no thank you. Yeah. <laughs> First up, we have Thufir Hawat, played by Stephen McKinley Henderson. The glorious teacher from Lady Bird. First one to cry wins. <laughs> <laughs> A connection I didn't make until just now. I am going to have to say pass. But kind of like Paul in the movie, he's like this grandfather figure. Mm-hmm. And you get to see his mentat abilities here. So it's more a character of appreciation mm-hmm. than desire. I'm also going to say pass for really similar reasons. I think he's just a little too analytical. I think he'd be a little too in his head. He's <laughs> <laughs> already getting crazy. <laughs> Listeners, feel free to skip ahead if you would like. 
<laughs> Next up is Gurney Halleck, played by Josh Brolin. Oh, this is an easy smash for me. <laughs> I feel like he plays right into your like middle age, strong, smart stereotype that mm-hmm. you might usually go for. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Like the part when Duglito tells him to smile and he says he is smiling, but he's just mm-hmm. kind of scowling. Oh my God, did it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to also say smash. He brings a kind of comedy to the role that I really like, and mm-hmm. he's maybe looking his best here. Yeah. There's nothing wrong. He's so protective. This is a great Josh Brolin role. Next up, we have Dr. UA. I'm going to say pass, and I know the character doesn't matter at all, but he's a double betrayer to both sides, so I feel like I can't trust him at all. And it's for those reasons that I'm going to say smash. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Unhinged. (laughs) Truly. I mean, we all love a bad boy in some way. I will say the way he touches Paul's head when he's checking his vitals. Mm -hmm. Touch me that way. Yeah. Check my vitals, please. (laughs) Next up is the Baron Harkonnen. Played by Stellan Skarsgård, the heavily prosthetic Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> oh, man. It's it's a pass for me. <laughs> He's really high maintenance. There can only be one high maintenance person in this relationship. <laughs> but also, yes, horrifying. I feel like those suspensers would be fun to try out. <laughs> Just not with him. But there's really, yeah, this is a hardcore <laughs> pass. Even Dr. Yue couldn't look him in the eyes and no thank you. Oh my god, I'm crying. <laughs> Next up we have Stilgar, played by Javier Bardem. Absolutely smash. Same. Again, everybody is looking their best here. When Javier storms into the large room to talk to the Duke Leto, he has such a commanding presence. Mm-hmm. And I am there for that. Yeah, I'm very, very into it. I would also say Smash, definitely. There's this photo of him. It's like a still I remember from when the Vanity Fair article came out, like the first look. And it's him and Denis. And he's brooding in this way that's just like, it hit my heart in a way Mm -hmm. where I was like, ooh, okay, I see you. I have to see this movie. (laughs) Next up is the Beast Raban Harkonnen, who is... A character they mostly take out of the first part of the book. So I'm really interested to see if they bring in that like battle sequence from the book into part two. Yeah. But he's like the fully white character. He's bald. He's so vicious. Yeah. He's played by Dave Bautista. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say pass here. He's really scary. Like I just, I don't think I could have any part of this really at all. (laughs) The way he screams and they cut to the women like shrieking and jumping. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-uh. No, thank you. No. Pass. Mm -hmm. Next up, we have Piter DeVries, which I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. I don't remember if they said it in the movie or not. Does it matter? But another bald man in the movie. (laughs) I guess that's the Harkonnen sign is being bald because all three of them are. Even though he's... This skinny tall guy who like cowers in the background. 
he is the opposite of Paul slash Timmy to me. He's creepy, even though I'm kind of upset. They took a lot of his character out of the movie. Pass. It would be a pass for me, regardless of how much this character was in the movie. Like, the <laughs> eyes, really just no way. Like, I just, oh. I would just instantly, no thank you. <laughs> Next up is the Duke Leto Atreides, played by Oscar Isaac. <laughs> I'm speechless. I think we both are. <laughs> I wish everyone could see my face in the Zoom right now. It is like bright red <laughs> blushing <laughs> yeah. um okay well the answer here is the only answer and it is smash there is a scene in this movie where when i saw this scene i thought to myself i wish we had an r rating here because we could see a little more and it's pg-13 and that's a shame i was trying to find this meme to send to the group text <laughs> because i just saw it again we're recording this after we recorded the episode. And <laughs> the perks I... of editing. <laughs> and the friend I went with said, show cock, please. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what everybody is thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this experience, this seeing this movie, it really is a sensory overload. And then you get here and it really is overwhelming. I, that's all I can say about mm-hmm. it. And I watch scenes from a marriage too. So it's like I knew what to expect. But mm-hmm. as far as like this character in particular, like this is a daddy type of character. Mm-hmm. He's very, I don't know. He's just like a, another strong leader type. Love it. <laughs> I'm like so flustered. I don't know what to say. You don't frame this shot this way and not teasing the audience that's what i was just gonna say denis is a tease like that's what's happening here <laughs> and i'm i'm unwell. the way his leg is positioned mm-hmm. and the way they dolly the camera uh-huh. up the table as the baron is moving mm-hmm. it's so smart and so good mm-hmm. This is also a smash for me, and I'm going to take back what I say later in the Oscar part about hairstyling and makeup, <laughs> and they should win this award solely for his beard. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, wait, you're so well trimmed. You're using this scene where he's naked to say they should win costume design. I really <laughs> no. thought that's what was going on here. <laughs> but yes, the beard, the beard alone. Agreed. The first shot of him, it's just so elegant mm-hmm. and handsome. He's a beautiful man. Next, we have Duncan Idaho, played by Jason Momoa. Another smash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he spits on that table. Oh, my God. I... Yeah. <laughs> Jason Momoa being Aquaman and just how large he is is definitely part of that mm-hmm. for sure. But I'm going to read you this description from how he's described in the book. Women are easily attracted to him. That's like one of his characteristics. But Paul specifically notes that he has feline movements, the swiftness of reflex that made him such a difficult weapons teacher to emulate. So he's quite dexterous, which is definitely a perk. (laughs) Well, he definitely moves in all of his fighting sequences like Mm -hmm. that. So I can definitely see that now. And, like, the way he gives Paul a hug and he's, like, so excited to see him mm-hmm. would love totally. that. <laughs> and jokes with Paul about his muscles yeah. or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it would be a fun time for sure. <laughs> okay, this is the last one. Mm-hmm. We have Paul Atreides, played by the one, the only, Timothy Chalamet. So I hate to let everyone down here, um, but I'm just going to say I'm leaving more for everyone else when I say pass here. Part of that is because when I first saw him shirtless on screen, I was like, why is this rich boy so underfed? Someone get him some food. Take care of him. Like, he needs to get some strength. And personally, I just don't think that would work for me. I don't think it would be a pleasant experience for either of us. And I feel, especially with Paul, he has a lot to learn. And I'm I'm beyond teaching at this point. So I'm going to say pass. Too fragile for you. Exactly. <laughs> I love that I sent you that joke. But he learns quickly. He, <laughs> he does learn quickly, but sickly Victorian children just aren't my thing. <laughs> he has a pretty face, though. I, re- I mean, I feel like he just looks like he mm-hmm. could be like my little brother. So I like just look at him in an endearing way. <laughs> okay, I can see that. One, the first shot of him in bed reminded me a lot of Troy Sivan. So I could see that if any of you know who that is, you know where this is going (laughs) into his face, every medium to close up shot of his face. I was like, please pause. the (laughs) I'm really happy for you. I I really am. I'm I'm so glad that you had this experience watching. It's similar to how I felt watching Adam Driver in a (laughs) net. I think now I finally understand how you feel about you were men yeah because i was just in awe of the beauty of this 25 year old (laughs) and that's so young i'm sorry (laughs) in a way also dexterous did the yelling work for you he like kind of yells a lot near the end when he yells at lady jessica Mm -hmm. that like hurts in my soul okay yeah what about when he's like kind of in pain with the box oh my god (laughs) I really can't say this on air. (laughs) That's why I asked. I knew it would bring up a reaction. (laughs) I had to stifle my laughs. Like this was, I was like, oh my God, that's his bottom face. (laughs) (laughs) Again, unhinged. So Um, unhinged. (laughs) But so delightful. He was so convincing there. I had lots of thoughts going through my mind smash that's the word there we go great i'm happy for you okay i think that was a really really fun time i'm glad that we did that people will probably be very scared i hope that if you're a first time listener and just heard that we do not do that every time but it was definitely i think worth it for this movie but if you did like this content, maybe we'll be bringing back more of this for our After Dark Patreon, yes. where we can kind of go more free range on things. So let us know. <laughs> okay, I think it's time to take a break before we get into our Oscar predictions. <laughs> okay. We both need to take a to breather. <laughs> My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. 
the outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? Duncan, can I trust you with something? Yes, always, you know that. I've been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. Hey, you. Put on some muscle? I did? No. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's only a way to you in my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. So for this next part, we're going to go through some Oscar predictions and... I think now that I've seen this, and I'm sure you'll agree, I can like actually say that this is an Oscar contender now, not just like some movie people were hoping would be. To start out, the sound in this movie. I really love the sound design. I think it's just a very immersive experience. What did you think of the sound? I also really liked it. I think sound, and we'll get to this later in the score, I think those are the strongest components of the movie. And I think they're one that you expect to be as well. Just because it's a space Mm -hmm. movie, you're being transported to this other world. And that's what you want to get you there besides the visuals. And it was my favorite part. I mentioned earlier about how I could feel it in my bones and kind of like the spice. I just wanted more and more of it. More spice like visually or more spice like a spicier script maybe? No, like the literal spice. Like I was addicted to the sound. (laughs) So our sound team, we have Mac Ruth, who is the production sound mixer, Mark Mangini and Theo Green, who are the supervising sound editors, and Doug Hemphill and Ron Bartlett, who are the re-recording mixers. So in that team, Mac Ruth has three nominations, Mark Mangini has five nominations, and won an Oscar for Mad Max Fury Road. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about that movie in comparison with this one for Oscar season. Theo Green was nominated for Blade Runner 2049, so another Deneem film. Doug Hemphill has nine nominations and one for The Last of the Mohicans, and Ron Bartlett also has two nominations. So this is a group that has quite a bit of Oscar history to it, and we wouldn't have any first-time nominees in this group if they were nominated again for Dune. Do you think Dune will get a nomination for Best Sound? Absolutely. I think this is pretty easy. What do you think? If I had to put money on it today, I think it's winning. I can't really think of anything else this year that will be this big, and a lot of people are talking about the sound, and when you have such an experienced group, I just feel like this is going to get nominated and I will not be surprised at all if it wins. And this would be very different from last year's best sound winner, Sound of Metal, which had like very intricate sound work. 
this is like much bigger and showier work but I think it is kind of essential to the type of film that it's trying to be and I know that the sound team worked really closely with Hans Zimmer to have the score and the sound design really play off of each other and go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe its only downfall is that either voters or just viewers period aren't going to know the difference between sound and score because they are so closely aligned but I still think it would get a nomination here. So let's move on to visual effects. Our team for visual effects here we have Paul Lambert who won for First Man and Blade Runner 2049. Tristan Miles, who also won for First Man. Gerd Nefser, who won for Blade Runner 2049. And Brian Connor, who doesn't have a nomination yet. What did you think of the visual effects in Dune? I think this is what you come for when you're going to see Dune. You know, this is the biggest part Mm -hmm. of the movie or of the environment. And... At least from the trailer or just knowing the story of Dune, you're getting sandworms and you're getting action sequences. So at least there, you know it's going to be visually stunning. And then you put Denis Villeneuve into it and you think about Arrival and Blade Runner 2049. So you also kind of know that you're going to get these grand epic effects mixed with just stunning visuals. This kind of blends into the cinematography, which we'll talk about in a second. How did you feel about the visual effects? I think when we're thinking of the other projects, it will get a nomination. There are a lot of visual effects here. There are some really cool things that they do. The um, suspensors for Baron Harkonnen, that was really neat. And the ornithopters and the worms. I think it's really impressive work and it's done at a really big scale, so... I also have this right now in the lead for the win. Do you think it will get nominated at least? Definitely a nomination. Usually I feel like the Oscars goes for more stunning effects used in subtle ways than, say, big Marvel movies or huge action sequences. And we do get some of that here, but it's also very subtle things like the body shields or the poison gas or the way the sand ripples when the sandworms are coming. There's a really great shot when the sandworm is diving away and it looks like water. It's just this great metaphor for their journey to this desert planet. I think if anything were to, like at this point, sight unseen, like come in and win, it would be Eternals. We do know, like, yes, that is a Marvel movie and the Academy doesn't love Marvel movies, but they do love Chloe Zhao. So I would keep an eye on that, but I think this feels like an easy early front runner for this mm-hmm. category. And Tenet won last year, our beloved Tenet, Mm -hmm. another Warner Brothers movie. So this might just be their category. (laughs) (laughs) So far, these past two categories, sound and visual effects, Dune is leading in Gold Derby. But one that it isn't leading in is costume design, which is what we'll be talking about next. The costume designers here are Jacqueline West, who is nominated for The Revenant, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Quills, and also Robert Morgan who so far doesn't have a nomination. What do you think of the costumes in Dune? I loved the costumes. There were so many different types of costumes that we had, and I learned that there were over 200 different types of costumes they created for the movie, which is just insane. Mm -hmm. I especially loved what they had the Bene Gesserit wearing and um, a specific gold outfit that 
Lady Jessica wears with this like veil over her face. I thought that was really cool. I think here a big thing about the costumes is that they had to make a very specific suit that is also a plot point. So I feel like we've talked about that before of like with Phantom Thread, for example, like costumes are the story or or like last year's winner, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, where they talk very specifically about the different types of costumes that the characters are wearing. So I feel like this was a really strong component of the movie. And because it's something that they talk about in the film, I can definitely see it getting nominated. What about you? I think what they have working for their advantage is just the mass amount of costumes and just having so many actors on set. They have to dress everybody Mm -hmm. and they do use a lot of different outfits. And I think that helps a lot. I definitely think they'll be getting a nomination here too, but I could see them not winning. Right now on Gold Derby, Cruella's in the lead. Not that I think Cruella's going to win, but we've mentioned on the pod before how they'll maybe go for something more period. And maybe you could still Mm -hmm. call Dune that, but I'm not holding my breath for the still suit to get them a win. Yeah, I think we have quite a bit of period films this year and period films still to come. They do love those costume dramas with the big hoop skirts. So I still also have Cruella in the lead just because that is like those costumes. Again, a huge part of the plot. Like it's all about fashion the entire movie. But I do think that, you know, if a voter, if the guilds are really into Dune, they could just check the box. I mean, that kind of is what Mm -hmm. happened with Mad Max Fury Road too. They won costume. Mm -hmm. Jenny Beaven, the Cruella costume designer. There you go. So next up, we have production design. Patrice Vermette was the production designer. She was nominated for Arrival and The Young Victoria. And then the set decorators were Richard Roberts and Susanna Sipos. And neither of the set decorators have any Oscar nominations. So production design-wise, I think this is one of the stronger elements. But how do you feel about that here? I feel like the strength of this movie is the world building. So many different sets are constructed here and these sets are really impressive. They do have kind of a cold look to them, I would say, and maybe aren't as, maybe you don't have as much production design as you would get on a set with maybe like Nightmare Alley this year, which we haven't seen, but just from the trailer alone that looks really detailed and colorful. This one's a little more drab, but still pretty and they're still and the sets are really impressive i really liked all the sets that they used i think contrasting these really open spaces these natural backgrounds with more detailed sets but their interiors they're of their new house their old home on arrakis and maybe this is what i like most about villeneuve's worlds is how he creates them and where we get to see the characters because here It's definitely the most fascinating part for me, just being able to look around like there's so much to see in each frame that like your eyes are constantly moving, trying to figure out how it's being used to navigate and supplement the story happening. So right now, Gold Derby has Dune at number one in their odds. I could see this changing, maybe. I do think it's going to get nominated because of what you just said, but... I think, you know, based on the Academy's preference in this category, we had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we had Mank, so I would definitely watch out for something very period heavy that's very, very intricate, like maybe 
Nightmare Alley or even the French Dispatch, which had my favorite production design so far mm-hmm. that I've seen this year. Or Cyrano. Cyrano. <laughs> <laughs> so our next category is score, which I think is like the most talked about thing in this movie, mm-hmm. pretty much. This Hans Zimmer score, he's been nominated 11 times, but has not won since The Lion King, which is kind of crazy. We've talked about this score before on the pod, but what did you think of it now that you've just experienced it as part of the movie? Have you listened to it on Spotify? How do you feel about this score? I've been listening to it nonstop wherever I go. (laughs) (laughs) I figured that's why I asked. Trying to figure out which track is my favorite. Right now it's Armada. And there's one sound that I like lost it during the movie. And it's kind of stupid, but it's a fun little (laughs) treat. I think Zimmer is our new John Williams, just based on nominations. Like he also did the score for No Time to Die. And it's always just this very rapturous, thrilling score. I always think of Inception when anybody says his name. And I really like that he didn't just follow the space score pattern. And it's like very earthy. He made new instruments. It's like very metallic. And again, it just helps you feel like you're in a new world. What do you think of the score? So it's funny that you mentioned John Williams because at New York Film Festival during the Q&A with Denis Villeneuve and Hans Zimmer, they asked him about the score and he said... I love John Williams. That's how he started the answer to this question, basically. (laughs) But he said that he, you know, growing up, didn't understand why scores for movies that took place in space or in another world used instruments from our world. Like, why were there strings? Why were there horns Mm -hmm. in space? Wouldn't they have something different? I will also say he has a great personality and a wonderful sense of humor. And the way that he talks about creating this score, he's just so engaging in talking about how he had this friend who I think is a welder who like helped him create wow. some of these instruments. Hmm. And the woman who's singing on a lot of the tracks, she recorded all in COVID in a closet <laughs> because she couldn't go into a studio. So he knows like the details to bring up i think to share the story of how the score was created and one thing i really loved that he said was that growing up he he read the book when he was a teenager but he never watched any of the other dune adaptations like he didn't watch the david lynch because he always had an idea of the movie that he wanted dune to be in his head and when denis asked him have you read dune <laughs> He kind of knew right then and there that they would have the same vision, and he knew he had to do Mm -hmm. it. It's just hard not to root for him when he talks about this score and how much it means to him. Mm -hmm. So I really like the score, too. And the fact that he declined to work on Tenet, because he is a Christopher Nolan mainstay, and he Mm -hmm. chose to work on this. And now that we know it's like this huge project that he totally made his own, like I'm happy he didn't because the tenant soundtrack too that's that's really good yeah oh my god so now that i've seen it and i can read reviews one of the weirdest things i've come across actually is that some people don't like this score they think it sounds like gladiator era early 2000s and i can't tell if i disagree or if i do agree and maybe that's why i like it because it has some nostalgic Mm -hmm. factor to it of these like epics that i grew up with 
But yeah, I feel like the score is what most people are coming away from this movie really loving and latching on to. I think it does, and I like that. So where do you have Zimmer right now? Like, Do you think he's going to get nominated? Is he your front runner? What are you thinking? I would say, again, another nomination here. The only other really notable score so far is The Power of the Dog. But I do think if we look back last year, Soul won, and that was like also just totally different for an Academy mm-hmm. pick, but also just the sounds they were using. So Zimmer could follow in their footsteps and take home another win. But I think it's too early to make any calls here, especially. You know who else could follow in Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's footsteps, though? Johnny Greenwood. I think he's going to get two nominations for The Power of the Dog and for Spencer. I think and hope that Zimmer will get in. I feel like he's a really strong contender here. The thing I'll say about The Power of the Dog score, which I did really love, was that when the movie ended, no one in my theater moved. Everyone stayed Mm -hmm. until the very, very end of the credits, just listening to that score. And that score over the end credits is like crazy Mm -hmm. good. But I think the story and the personality, perhaps, behind the Dune score could benefit it in the long run. Next up, we have editing. Our editor here is Joe Walker. He's been nominated twice for Arrival and 12 Years a Slave. What did you think of the editing in Dune? I don't have much to say about the editing here. Not that it was bad. I think it flows really well. I mentioned that they fit a lot in, and that's, I'm sure, partially due to the editing and just keeping the pace up, the energy high, and constantly moving you know as we go through different sets that can sometimes seem a little jarring but I think they work together with cinematography again to use lighting to their advantage and that helps the editing flow a bit more so prediction I'm gonna say definitely yes and it is my front runner right now how about you because I know you said at first you didn't like the editing did it get better did it change no it didn't (laughs) um This is just not my style. I think that this editing is pretty choppy and it's a lot of quick cuts and you're not really allowed to linger anywhere. And I kind of like that time that you get. I also feel though that this editing, the pacing of this was good. It was very strong and I think that's due to the editing. I think that Joe Walker also having worked with Denny on Arrival, he understands clearly that that like slow burn entry style into action and a reveal potentially in the last like hour hour and a half I think that works really well in this movie and I think that the pacing is really good this movie did fly by for me I also have it as my front runner right now I think having sound as a front runner the sound and the editing nominations and wins usually do go hand in hand last year that's what happened for sound of metal and the academy also likes showy editing and that's kind of what this is too at least to me that was very much what I saw in this editing that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just very much a style that the academy likes Mm -hmm. um beware of don't look up I guess because that will probably have very similar editing (laughs) maybe even showier yeah I would say probably more so (laughs) (laughs) next up we have cinematography the cinematographer is Greg Frazier You'll also know him from the recently released Batman trailer. So he is very busy. He was previously nominated for Lion. What did you think of the cinematography? I thought it was really beautiful. 
my favorite shot or like the most beautiful shot I thought was when Timmy as Paul when he's walking in Caledon and he has the black coat on and you like see the water in the background lots of blues and greens and grays I loved that I thought that was really beautiful and I also did love how the spice looked I will not be surprised at all if this gets a nomination I have it in my predictions Mm -hmm. all of the same I also have it predicted but I'm not convinced that it would win Grand is what you expect, and it's what you get. And I like that he uses lots of bold colors, contrasting the emptiness of space with like the warmth of the desert and the Fremen, and how he also does that with these castles, I guess, that they live in. I feel like a lot of the movie was dark. Did you feel the same way? I did. Not in like a bad way or a distracting mm-hmm. way, but it was it was pretty dark. It reminded me a lot of Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. honestly. Like, that was the look, I thought. It was very Game of Thrones inspired, especially in those later seasons, because they're working in so many different spaces and environments. But I did think that the cinematography really nicely highlighted those differences Mm -hmm. and how you would feel about those spaces, too. Like, you can feel how hot Arrakis is and how much they need water. And you can feel how, like, cold and dark... The Harkonnens, like those shots are all very dark, blacks and grays. Mm -hmm. I really liked that. Like the shot of him in the like oil bath and whatever they add. Uh That was really cool. And this is also where Danny gets to use the camera to highlight environmental issues. Like one shot that comes to mind is the palm tree on fire and like what that represents to these people. He definitely like did some of the same things in Blade Runner 2049. I feel like even a little bit in Arrival as well. But I think just visually stunning, fun to watch, and I'll be watching it a few more times. And I'm excited to catch new things. So really quick, just nomination check here. We have this getting nominated for up to this point seven Oscars. And we still have a couple more to go through, so... Just a tally. (laughs) Next, we have Adapted Screenplay. We have Eric Roth, who is a six-time nominee. Um, He won for Forrest Gump. We also have Denis Villeneuve. And John Spates, who wrote Passengers and Doctor Strange. Some um, interesting credits. (laughs) And, of course, it's based on the novel by Frank Herbert. How do you feel about this as a screenplay contender as an adaptation of the book i know we talked a lot about that at the beginning with Mm -hmm. changes from the book but overall do you think this was a successful adaptation i think it was successful they extracted the most necessary parts is it going to get knocked for being half of a book maybe but i still think they could get a nomination i have it in maybe that's hopeful how do you feel about the screenplay here I'm not going to harp on it too much. I don't love this screenplay. I do think that what he does with the material, though, in in making it relatively easy to understand, I know that's coming from a person who has read the book and has that additional context, but I feel like he made it easier to understand than it was for me in the novel. So Mm -hmm. that is a feat in and of itself. I do think, though, for me, it was missing a central why. I didn't get a lot out of the characters. And ultimately, I just left the theater not really feeling anything. I need a little bit more for my screenplays. Like, I want 
I want to be thinking after I see it. I want to be feeling something. And I just was kind of empty. And I think that's due to the screenplay. That's, that's where that kind of comes from. I will say the very beginning, we mentioned this earlier too, of how it made me think differently about the circumstances of their planet. So I do really like that part of it, but I understand where you're coming from in it's a spectacle and now it's like, okay, I want to see part two, not like, what are the implications of this happening in the year 10,000 have for us now or like, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Like adapted screenplay is just a really weird category this year. It almost feels kind of thin, but right now Gold Derby has Dune at eight. Which I don't I don't know how I feel about that. I I don't know. I mean, I have it just on the outside. Mm-hmm. But I also am like not that confident in what I have in right now. Mm-hmm. I think we just need to see more. But I do also think like part of the biggest thing here is that a lot of fans of the book are saying that this is the adaptation they wanted. So I feel like if enough people hear that, if enough people feel that way, mm-hmm. I don't see why it can't get in. And this is also a book that people have tried and failed to adapt. So mm-hmm. that can also be another narrative that could work in its favor. Looking at the Gold Derby predictions, we have Coda in fourth and The Lost Daughter in sixth, which would be my underdog pick because I really like what they do. But we also just have movies that haven't been screened or haven't been seen yet. So it's like, will they be in there? Will they not? Nightmare Alley, House of Gucci, and The Humans are all above Dune. And all that I'm excited for, but I am a little surprised that it's eighth on that list. Especially considering the tragedy of Macbeth is three. We know they don't like Shakespeare. So I'm just, I don't know. I'm curious what will happen with that. This is a fascinating category this year to keep your eye on because Mm -hmm. it's just weird. It just, none of it makes sense to me yet. I can't quite feel it out. So this is like a toss-up for us. Maybe it'll get in. Maybe it won't. Mm -hmm. No, like, firm feelings either way. Um, Next up is Best Makeup and Hairstyling. We have Donald Mowat, Love Larson, and Ava Von Barr. Love and Ava both have two Oscar nominations. I think this could be another case of, like, one character's makeup leading the campaign, like Glenn Close from Hillbilly Elegy. And that is with the Baron Harkonnen. But how did you feel on the whole about makeup and hairstyling? I thought his makeup was great. Like the prosthetic work was really cool. Making Stellan Skarsgård look just like this massive character mm-hmm. <laughs> with all of these prosthetics like, really worked. I don't know if it's enough. I feel like there are a lot of head coverings. Like you have veils, you have helmets, hats. And I think that takes away from the hairstyling. So you're really kind of leaning on makeup and there's not a lot of over the top. And that's sometimes what gets nominated. So this probably won't be very high for me. I'll have to think about it. But if I had to choose now, I would say no nominee here. I'm going to go with nominee, but I'm not confident. I think that the reason I'm saying this is because on the Warner Brothers FYC page, Love Larson and Ava Von Baer, they are both listed specifically as prosthetic designers and makeup artists for Baron Harkonnen. 
So they will be showcasing like that character in particular mm-hmm. and the Academy loves prosthetic work. So I can see them just like in the bake off when they do that, mm-hmm. going all in on showing everything that they did for this one particular character. Maybe it won't be enough. I'm still curious of what they'll think of Jared Leto and House of Gucci because that is like that's a big transformation too in a lot of prosthetics. I would say maybe a bigger transformation. Like yes, Stellan looks 800 plus pounds, but that's not his face. Like his right. it just comes back to Pinocchio again and me wanting them to have won. Oh my god, Pinocchio. <laughs> you know who else we have to worry about here? This is going to be like a crazy category. Could be because we might have Eyes of Tammy Faye being the Ricardos. It might just be like all of that caked on makeup. Yeah. Biopic galore again. Moving on to acting. We have a really big ensemble here. The only actor who will be run and lead is Timothy Chalamet for Best Actor. Everyone else will be in supporting. Do you think this has a chance to get into any of the acting categories? I would say no. I think they're great, but overall, they're smaller performances. Like, yes, I think Timmy's really convincing when they do the hand in the box. And we talked about Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica earlier, and I really liked her too. But I don't think this is an acting nomination kind of movie. I agree with you. I do think Warner Brothers should push Rebecca Ferguson, though, in supporting Supporting actress is, like, really wide open right now. There's not a front runner. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe Katrina Balfe, because they just confirmed that Belfast will be in supporting. So, Judy Dench and Katrina Balfe. Maybe Kirsten Dunst for Power of the Dog. But we don't have, like, a clear front runner, So, there is space. And I feel like what I've heard from everyone who has seen Dune is that they love Rebecca Ferguson mm-hmm. as Jessica. So, I think Warner Brothers should push her. They have a lot of work to do because this is like such a top to bottom film contender wise. But mm-hmm. like, I think that would be really fun. That'd be great to see one just so unexpectedly show up on nomination morning. Uh-huh. Right. Like, what if she's like Lakeith Stanfield? I'm in. Appear? Yeah. Another Warner Brothers yeah. surprise. So why not? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start pushing her. Did you have another favorite like performance in the ensemble? Like not related to the Oscars, just mm-hmm. a favorite. I wish they had just expanded and done more scenes from the book because there are some from there that I really wanted to see. But I do like Javier Bardem as Stilgar. He came in and he does this like really funny scene when he meets the Duke Leto. I don't really have another favorite though. That's that's a hard part about like trying to cover so much ground yeah. in this story is I feel like we didn't get enough time with the characters and with the actors mm-hmm. because I really like Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho. I felt like he was, he just had so much charisma and charm and I just wanted to spend mm-hmm. more time with him. His rise in popularity really scared me for this movie. When I heard that he was in it, I was like, Oh God. <laughs> but I was really surprised. I mean like with game of Thrones and Aquaman, I think under his belt, I was like, He's just a big name, but he does do a good mm-hmm. job here. And then on to director, obviously, Danny Villeneuve here. He only has one nomination for Arrival. Do you think he can get his second with Dune? I think he will. I mean, I, I feel like directing a movie of this size and scale that is an epic that 
people have tried and failed to do before that a lot of other directors are praising. I feel like he's going to get in. I'm kind of shocked that people don't think he's going to, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of short-sighted. I don't know. I feel like he accomplished something that is really, really challenging to tackle. And I think a lot of directors will notice that. I also did like a lot of the choices that he made. He's also just a very nice person. (laughs) So. I love to hear that. Do you not want to get your hopes up? Do you feel good about it? Are you worried? I feel good about a nomination. Part of the DGA restructuring their laws to include Dune basically gives me a little bit of hope too. And initially when I found out that he was making this, I put my full trust in him and I did that for a reason. And I came out as happy as I could have expected to be from a movie like this. So I would love to see him finally win. I think he could have a chance depending on like how the campaigns are run this year, but I'm not going to hold my breath just because it's like an epic, huge movie. And that's not what the Oscars do with direction. And Wild Dune is this really well-known book. I don't think Dune Part 1, the movie, is going to be like a classic on the same level of Ben-Hur or Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. So Gold Derby right now has him in second. Um, just below Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog, who I'm rooting for. I don't trust the Academy to give it to two women back-to-back, though. Mm -hmm. Just saying. So the weird thing I think about Gold Derby right now is they have Kenneth Branagh in fifth. He would actually be, like, who I think is going to win Mm -hmm. for Belfast. Maybe they're thinking he's going to be, like, the Martin McDonough of this year. I don't know. That's interesting. Also, we have to think about PTA for Licorice Pizza. Guillermo del Toro for Nightmare Alley, but those haven't come out yet. Other than Best Actress, Director is my favorite category at the Oscars just to watch and pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious how this will shake out this year. And then lastly, we have Picture. This year, we have 10 confirmed nominees for Best Picture. No more sliding scale of guessing if we're going to get 7 or if we're going to get 9. We know we're going to get 10. Do you think Dune will be in that group of 10? Absolutely. It's probably in my top five. We'll see how audiences take this once it comes out. If it does end up being really successful, I think that's just going to help push it higher in the ranks. And definitely with 10, it's going to get in, which is great. I think it's going to get in too. I think as a big tech contender, it's going to, it just makes sense that it would get in. It's going to have probably a lot of guild support. But yeah, I also have it right now in my top five. It is five on Gold Derby right now, um, below The Power of the Dog, Belfast, Nightmare Alley, and Licorice Pizza, which is very interesting. I know that you're like such a big Denis Villeneuve fan. Where does this fall when you compare it to his other movies? Did Oof. I ask you too quickly? Um. Oh my God. I would say this is in the top half for me. I don't know if I can rank them right now, but I'm going to have to go back and watch and do that. Does Arrival still stand as a better movie for you than Dune? Yes. I will say that. I also like Prisoners more, um, which I just watched. I liked oh, that. Oh, good. I also rewatched Blade Runner 2049 and liked that. So you're a Denis Maybe fan I'm now. Growing. <laughs> Maybe I'm growing. Maybe I'm growing. 
I'm not going to be like, this is the movie that's going to save the world, but I don't think it has to be. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. You said you had it at NOM. Did you say where you had it? Right now, I have this actually in my top four. Oh, wow. I was just talking about this this weekend. Someone asked me, they were like, what do you think is definitely getting into picture? Well, let me tell you about two movies I haven't seen yet that I think are getting into picture, and those are Belfast and King Richard. <laughs> but then I would say The Power of the Dog and Dune. Those are like the four right now I have up top. Licorice Pizza, I obviously like hope for, but as a PTA fan, I, I'm nervous. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to predict something and be let down until I see it. I think those are my three locks, are Belfast, Power of the Dog, and Dune. No King Richard yet. I'm going to wait and see. It's in my 10, but I feel like everything's in my 10. So like. <laughs> I know. I don't I'm, know. We have so much to see, which is so exciting still. I can't wait. And our famous question, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? You can only pick one. Like you, <laughs> If you're thinking of the Oscars this year, it can be picture. We'll allow it. Uh. I'm going to go with score. I'm going to give Zimmer his second Oscar. I think it contributes so much to the movie. And while I like a lot of these aspects, we've talked about a lot of them, the score is going to stick with me. And I think it's going to influence other scores from here on out and showing how Zimmer like adapted to this piece and created what he wanted for it. I think it pushes it over the top here. And what would you give it? I would give it best sound. I just, the experience of like being in a big theater and hearing how loud it was and just all of the little intricacies of the sound design was really cool. And it reminded me a lot of like when I was a kid and went to see Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and was just like, what is this? Mm -hmm. This is so cool. Like I am at the movies and I feel like after the year that we've had that's something we all kind of need it's just Mm -hmm. like a sensory overload (laughs) at the movie theater (laughs) and the sound is what did that for me i saw halloween kills in this dolby theater and it was like the seats were vibrating during certain sequences and i i know there's like a certain theater that does that maybe it was this but i was like I love this experience. Like, I cannot wait Mm -hmm. to see Dune in IMAX tonight again. Like, I am so ready because it's always so loud. And this is the one time I, like, really want it. (laughs) Yeah. I agree with that. And it'll drown out the sounds of everyone else in your movie theater. (laughs) Oh, my God. All the popcorn and cellophane and talking. Oh, my God. My favorites. Yes. Well, we've covered the movie that you'd been waiting for, Dune. I had so much fun talking about this with you. I'm glad that I liked it. It would have been a really tough road if I didn't. I'll say that. I'm glad you liked it too. This behemoth, it's so entertaining. There's a lot to go back to. I will definitely be going at least three times to see this or maybe more on HBO Max just to like see it, have it on in the background. But I think it's a great experience, a fun time. It flies by, and it's stunning. I think it's a worthy movie for us to be talking about for the next five months. Yeah, we will have five months of talking about Dune in some way. (laughs) (laughs) So get ready. 
And next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be doing one of our release roundups. So we'll be going over a number of releases from October that we think could have Oscar potential. One that I can say probably doesn't, but we just want to talk about Mm -hmm. anyway. (laughs) And those movies are No Time to Die, Titan, Mass, Halloween Kills, and The Last Duel. So we'll be talking about five movies, which I'm very excited for. Another big range of movies and... The only one I have left to see is The Last Duel, so we'll see if they're all positive reviews or not. <laughs> so four of them are for you. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. Okay. Net positive, yeah. So October was better than September. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I can also confidently say that, even though I still have two more to go. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at OscarWildePod. And if you listen to this episode without seeing Dune yet, go see Dune. If you've already seen it, see it again. (laughs) We want to see part two. So do that. And thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next time. Bye.